Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. What happened to Canada's first self-declared feminist government? Good question. We'll get into that. Marilee Fullerton was the Minister of Children Community Services and an MPP for Ottawa until she just up and resigned last week. We'll delve into that and find out what the reasons for that happen to be. And Marcus Colga, Director of DisinfoWatch, will join us to discuss the growing threat of Russian information operations and misinformation. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. I want to swing back, if we could, to start the show today uh, with some feedback and uh, some reaction to the federal budget from earlier this week, uh, including what some people are saying is is the abandonment of uh, the Trudeau government's uh, uh, feminist government. Remember 2015? You know, because it's 2015, half the cabinet were going to be females. And there was an indication there was going to be a a changing accent about, about, about... a lot of things about gender equity and a number of other things. And they, uh, the government is maintaining that they are doing that. Uh, the government's foreign policy, the feminist aspects of that, is uh, aiming to change the world for women and girls. But the Feder- Federal Auditor General says the government isn't really doing t- enough to track what's going on. Karen Hogan is the uh, Auditor General. She says Global Affairs Canada should be doing a better job. But Minister Harjit Sajan says we're doing it. We've got the data. The department must improve how we report on the broader impact of Canada's gender equality projects, and we must do better um, on this. As Minister of International Development, I have seen the results of our feminist international uh, policy around the world. Uh, so that's what's happening offshore in, in other parts of the world. But what about here? What about the government's commitment here to things like gender equity? There's an interesting piece in, uh, in the uh, Toronto Star that talks about this uh, federal budget is swinging a miss for Trudeau's shrinking feminist government of Canada. Uh, the author of the piece, Armin Yalnizia, joins us uh, right now. She's an economist and Atkinson Fellow on the Future of Workers. Armin, pleasure to have you back on the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Bill, it's always a pleasure to be with you. Uh, I, I was watching for some of this stuff, and, and as you mentioned in the piece, uh, the anticipation that there were going to be some inclusionary things about this, about gender inequity, about pay inequity, the pink tax, they even talked about that, about how women are, are being gouged, basically, with the prices of a number of things that you know men pay less for. Not a whole lot of anything when it comes to gender issues in this budget, were there? No, in fact, uh, investments were mentioned quite a bit more often than women. Uh, sorry, critical minerals were. <laughs> and investments were mentioned more than work. And we are in a labor shortage like we haven't seen for half a century. That doesn't just affect women, but it certainly affects women because a lot, a large part of the um, choke point in the system is in the care economy. We don't have enough nurses. We don't have any person, enough personal care workers. And we are losing the early learning and child care workers we have all because we are paying them quite poorly. Um, certainly wages aren't catching up to inflation. And in many cases, personal care workers and child care workers don't have benefits. So why wouldn't you go and get a better job when a child care worker in this province can make as much as a pet groomer if you go on Indeed, that website, and uh, (laughs) after having a two-year certificate in early learning and education? I mean, we really undervalue women's work systemically. But what does that mean, Bill? It means that... uh, Primarily, it's the women that will then pick up the unpaid care at home uh, for their ailing parents, for their very young children, for, for maybe themselves or those that they love who are sick um, and more sick than they normally would be. So that really taps out 
the growth that everybody looks for in every budget and the productivity people are looking for. We're idling potential by making by not addressing these major labor shortages, but there was absolute crickets in this budget on that. And and I understand, as you mentioned in the piece, I think you, you, you're on the side with this too. We understand that because of Biden's uh, policies that, that were adopted over the last couple of years, uh, we need to stay economically competitive. So a lot of this uh, initiative towards green energy makes sense. But I guess the frustration a lot of people are feeling is, is yes, do this, but not at the expense of, of at the everyday issues, you know, down here at street level here, what's going on. As, as you mentioned, there's a new daycare spaces being created. That's great. There's nobody to look after the kids, but the spaces are there. Well, that's precisely it. Like uh, there was a doctor in Toronto, Andrew Buzari, that said uh, a bed without a nurse, uh, sorry, a hospital room without a nurse is just a bed. Uh, so, it's oh, I got it completely wrong, Bill. <laughs> the line was a bed without a nurse, a hospital bed without a nurse is just a, a mattress, which is a great line, but that's kind of it the is. same for childcare spaces. Um, and it, look, don't get me wrong, this is the most progressive government in my lifetime, in my adult lifetime, and has been at, with bar none the most feminist, understanding that the role of women is equal to the role of men in making sure we get her done it, each and every day. It, it just feels like they went like they're they left the building sometime in the last year as inflation started to soar. So to your point, absolutely necessary and unavoidable to do something to catch up to Joe Biden's Inflation Reduction Act, which is really a strategy to reshore jobs and to pivot to a cleaner energy base. We should be doing that too. And, you know, we will miss out on huge opportunities and huge amounts of capital. We'll leave Canada and go find a way to make money in the United States. So had to be done. No argument there whatsoever. But $20 billion for these folks to incentivize business to do something that they should be incented to do anyway, because that's where the money is. $20 billion over the next five years. And for workers, I'm not, uh, just get ready for this number, $20 billion with a B versus 107 with an M, $107 million for workers. What happened to the recession everybody's telling us is going to come our way? Why aren't we getting EI recession ready? There was huge consensus on at least dropping the hours qualifying people to be eligible. But let me tell you another thing. <laughs> they not only didn't do anything about EI, they gave a hint as to what they could have done if they didn't want to do massive EI reforms. They have 5.4 million, again, 5.4, 5 million, 400,000. Where did they come up with the 400,000 for work sharing? What does work sharing do? It permits em employers and employees to apply for income support for workers that lose I think it's 50%, but maybe it's 30% of their hours. I forget what mm -hmm. that threshold is. And that's the type of recession we are seeing now because of labor shortages. All, the, all employers are really struggling to find workers to do the job. So they're not going to lay them off, but they'll cut their hours. Well, okay, put the math together. If you are a worker and you are seeing 20% less, 30% less, 50% less, fewer hours, and prices of groceries, prices at the gas pump, your rent is going up. You are in an even more affordability pickle than you were a few months ago. And that's exactly where the government should be stepping in to offset the pain of central bank rate hikes. But there's 
crickets in this budget on that front. They just extended the $2.5 billion GST credit, but you're only likely to get that maximum $234 if you make less than $10,000. So it's not reaching most people that are still working and completely struggling with the bills. And it's certainly not reaching the people that did not access EI before the pandemic hit. That would have been six out of 10 jobless people could not access jobless benefits, even though they pay into it at the front end. It's crazy. You and I have talked about this in the past. I mean, I I guess governments have short memories. Well, that's a given, I suppose. But how many times were we talking about how the recession and, and how inflation was having a negative impact much more on women than, than it was on men. Uh, that there had to be some equity there. And that's one of the reasons why there was uh, so many openings, uh, because women weren't returning to the workforce for a variety of reasons. Uh, and, and the government seemed to be on side with that. They seemed to be on the same page as, as the economists were. Uh, what happened? I mean, why, why have they, they dropped the ball on this? Well, you've got me because it's absolutely true that this was the world's first ever she session. The thing we're going to go through now is not going to be necessarily gender skewed, but women will have to cut back on hours of work because there isn't enough health care, child care and elder care out there. So that's what's going to happen is fewer hours of paid work. That isn't your typical uh, trade off between inflation and unemployment. That's usually about the number of people that lose their jobs entirely. And that will happen too, because those job, uh, those uh, businesses that barely clung on through the pandemic because of lower revenues and higher costs are now being dinged with higher costs in terms of interest rates. So their, their borrowing costs are higher. Some of them are going to shudder. There was a study in Statistics Canada talking about how the zombie businesses, ones that are still there on the books, but haven't been doing any business for quite some time. Uh, or have been doing almost no business for quite some time, is uh, we have a larger share of those businesses in our ecosystem than in the United States since the pandemic hit. So uh, we're waiting for that shoe to drop, and that will mean more official job loss. But I guess the bigger story for me right now, uh, and it should be for all of your listeners, unless you are owning your home and have no mortgage, the bigger story is the housing story. What has happened with The fastest uh, escalation of interest rate hikes by the central banks is that mortgage costs have gone up, and that means more people are uh, not moving into the housing market from the rental market, so that's adding people to an already undersupplied rental market. That's also squeezing the number of affordable spaces because you've got sheerly, you just got more people in there, so that's squeezing more people and raising rents up. And on top of that, we are dealing with our labor shortages through federal policy by letting in over a million and a half permanent and temporary residents to come and work and study in this country and to do the work that we say we need to do. Plus the refugees, they need a place to live too. So we are adding millions of people um, over the course of the next five years uh, to our largely to our biggest communities, where there is the greatest shortage of rental stock. And there was not even the measure in this budget to say, yeah, the Bank of Canada had to raise rates to try and tame inflation. So we're going to make up the difference between your financing costs so we don't lose any time on building affordable rental stock. Nope, they didn't do that. That would have been a very low-cost item that would have stopped the stall on building affordable housing. And did you know we are building affordable rental housing roughly at 
half the rate we were in the 1970s. Uh, this is the federal government support. Half the rate in the 1970s when our population is growing by their policies roughly two and a half times as much. So, you know, th this is absolutely a time for action, fe federal fiscal action to add to the stock of affordable rental stock at, uh, housing. And I don't mean by affordable the Ontario government definition, which I think is 80% of the average rent. I mean rent geared to income so that people aren't killing themselves paying paying the rent. And that th there's no market that's going to deliver that. We have to give that to one another. And if we need these people to work here, we need to help them live here. And that's certainly true. More true, the pressure becomes harder on women than on men, uh, especially if they are forced to live in unsafe conditions because there's no place for them to move to, or they can't move from wherever they are to a better place because there just isn't anything cheaper around. So these are really... These are problems of the day. The clean energy uh, initiative, which, as we both said, is absolutely needed and politically there is no way to duck it. That's for the future. And we need to do it. But we need to be doing something for the people today that are hungry, that are underhoused, and are sick. And there's just nothing in there other than the money that they gave the provinces to fix health care. But you can see how that's being used in this province. It's, it's a joke. Yeah, it, it really is. I mean, there's there's so much more we could touch on here, but we're just short on time as per usual here. Uh, I'm I'm troubled by the fact, and I I agree with your assessment of the housing situation here. It is, you know, if it wasn't a crisis, it's certainly heading at high speed toward that. Yet the government's own projections, the provincial provincial government's own projections in their budget last week, so there's nowhere near attaining the goals that they set for themselves. So, I mean, that was a lot of hyperbole without a whole lot of action on this. Uh, so, you know, it, it just wonder. I know we're going to do a segment later on on the show I mean, about, about health care. And as you mentioned, during the pandemic, it was promise after promise. Oh, my God, long-term care, uh, primary care. We've got to do something about this. And we promise as soon as we get out of this, uh, we're going to make this happen. We're going to take action on this. And now in the last two budgets, federal and provincial, you know what they're saying is, yeah, that was then, this is now. Uh, it, let, we'll just do this now instead. It just, it's awfully frustrating. It really is. And for people out there that might be thinking, well, what do the feds have to do with it other than bankrolling it? We, we know how to put ring fence around our money. This isn't federal money. This is our money. Our tax dollars that we have sent to Ottawa, that they are sending back to us to help fix a problem, need to be tied to certain outcomes. Not conditions, but outcomes. We are paying to buy change in this area, that area, the other area. We know how to do this. We've done it before. And we've achieved great goals, especially in healthcare, when it came to wait times for cataract surgeries, hip surgeries, diagnostic tests. We did it before. So we know how to do it. We're just not doing it for some reason. Or we're waiting for these bilateral agreements to get inked somehow. But the one that the province inked with the feds for childcare, they already violated it within the first year. And we have no way of penalizing them. It's all goodwill. So we've got a exactly. real big problem on making sure the money goes to providing high quality care, not to providing dividends for for-profit shareholders, which is what is happening right now. Exactly. Uh, I mean, we'll have to leave it there for now. Always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so much for this. Look forward to our next conversation. Thank you, Bill. Take care. Uh, and, and it's a thought-provoking piece, and you can go to the Toronto Star website and, uh, and read her essay in, in full and get you a, a perspective on that. 
You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Went less person than cabinet he did last week anyway with the surprise resignation of uh, Mary Lee Fullerton. And not just resigning from cabinet, but resigning her seat in the, the legislature, too. Matt Gurney writes about it. Uh, Matt, of course, is a columnist with TVO, and you can catch uh, his uh, wonderful missives on uh, TVO.org. Uh, Matt, great to have you back in the program. Thanks for the time today. Appreciate it. Marilee Fullerton, we hardly knew you. I mean, she's been around for a little while, but uh, I, I guess any notoriety that she has as a member of the Ford cabinet was probably for all the wrong reasons, as you wrote. Yeah, it's interesting because, like, some people uh, end up in political politics after having, like, a, a long road somewhere, right? Like, they've been an MP or maybe even a cabinet minister out of federal government or they're a, a former mayor or something like that. Some people, though, are just people. And Fullerton, like, her pre-politics background, she was a medical doctor out near Ottawa, and she wrote the odd column. And, it was, you know, I actually went back and checked out her old column archive. It was all basically healthy living stuff because she was a doctor, right? So she was kind of mm-hmm. writing pretty good, pretty obvious, and pretty benign medical advice columns, how to take good care of yourself. Gets into politics, is elected, uh, gets a, a seat in cabinet because, hey, you know, her, her resume is impressive enough. She's a medical doctor. She's from a part of the province where the government did a ha- didn't have a ton of representation, uh, the Ottawa region, so they put her in. If it hadn't been for covid she probably would have had a very benign, unremarkable, and probably in its own way, honorable career, right? But she, yeah. a, a lot of other people out there as well, kind of had uh, had the misfortune, I guess, of finding themselves in a position of real responsibility in a moment of crisis. And crises, you know, they... <laughs> They separate the men from the boys, as my hockey coach used to tell me when I was, in fact, a boy, wondering, I'm not a man. Why is he telling me this? But you know the old saying, um, crisis is a pretty harsh uh, teacher, and it's also a ruthless way of basically cutting through all the BS and just revealing people for what they are. Fullerton may, may have been a great doctor. She was a perfectly capable columnist writing on health matters uh, many years ago. But she was no crisis leader, and we found that out. Well, variations on your theme there, too. You know, that uh, crisis like that does not build character. It exposes it. And then maybe that's what we saw with her. Uh, but in fairness, and, you know, we would try to be, the, it's easy to just lay, you know, the guilt right at her feet and said, well, you screwed this up pretty good. Um, they they weren't ready for this. I mean, the government wasn't ready for this. Our healthcare system wasn't ready for this, uh, and and that was that was the, that was the the foundation or lack thereof uh, for the way that we responded and the way that she responded in her ministry. Yeah, I've all, I've written even like I wrote about Fullerton this week because of her. Uh, you already mentioned this her surprise announcement on Friday that she was stepping down. Uh, but I've written about her before, and I've written about her a couple of times over the years, especially during the pandemic. So I went back in my old archive, and I pulled those old articles up. I've really tried to be fair to her. And I don't know if Fullerton would feel as though she's been the beneficiary of much fairness on my behalf. And okay, that's fair enough, I guess, no pun intended. But I've really tried to be fair in assigning my uh, criticism and assigning my blame here. Because of what you just said, the honest-to-God truth, and it's an unpleasant truth, but it's a truth all the same, is that throughout COVID, we fell flat on our face, and we did that everywhere. No level of government looked good. 
no area of the country looked good. A couple areas looked better. The Atlantic Canadian provinces uh, handled it better. And hey, like there are some countries like South Korea and Taiwan and Israel that had really good, strong responses. So there are occasional exceptions to this. But overall, most of us discovered in early 2020 that we were not ready psychologically, emotionally, or logistically, and that our governments weren't either. And Fullerton, I don't think, is particularly bad by that standard. I think she was sort of just part of the crowd who probably never really thought about what it would be like being in charge during a pandemic and and things like that. Um, and I think the, the important point, and I don't say this to deflect blame, this is just the facts on the ground, Ontario's long-term care system was a disaster, and it was a known disaster. And I had been writing about it even before the pandemic. It was an infamous mess. And the Liberals under Dalton McGuinty and under Kathleen Wynne had sort of acknowledged this, and they'd begun to nibble around the edges a little bit at fixing it. Doug Ford, when he was elected, makes Fullerton the uh, the minister for long-term care, and she had been talking about kind of some of those structural improvements but it's, it's Canada, man. Like, we don't do stuff. We talk about stuff. So we've <laughs> talked about all the things we have to do. But we hadn't really begun to do any of them when COVID comes. And I, so I, you know, I give Fullerton some of that blame, but I don't give her all of it because she inherited a broken system. And also, more than that, she also inherited a political culture where there was no real uh, urgency, no real need for change. So a lot of horrible things happened on her watch. We all know that. We all remember the Army having to go into long-term care homes. Like, that's something I'm never going to forget. She gets some of that blame, but she doesn't get all of it. But what happened in Ontario, Bill, and you'll remember this, is that when that second wave rolled through, we were assured that we were ready. First wave caught us by surprise. Nothing we could have done about that. I don't really believe that, but okay, that's true to an extent. The second wave, we knew it was coming. We knew what we were dealing with. We knew what had happened in the first wave. The government had had months to prepare. And in fact, the government had told us it was prepared. And what happened? We had more deaths in the second wave than we had in the first. And that's inexcusable. And and there was some politics. I mean, you and I talked about that at the time, you know, the private versus public and who owns those things. And there were a lot of former conservatives on those boards of directors. And and that we don't know just how extensive uh, of an influence that had. But I guess what bothered me about it at the time, though, and you touched on this in your piece, Matt, uh, is, as you say, the way when the you-know-what hit the fan here, she reacted badly. Um, she she has an awfully thin skin for somebody who wants to be in politics. I mean, because you know you're going to be a target. And she did not act well. She did not react well to, to, to media criticisms and media questions about this. I have a very specific memory of uh, sitting at home. Everybody was sitting at home then, I guess, except yeah. for the central workers. Um, I'm sitting in my basement, which during the lockdowns, basically, my wife took the main floor, I took the basement, and the kids each were up in their bedrooms on the second floor doing their school. So I'm in my basement news bunker, and Fullerton is coming out for some press conference, and this was around the time of the second wave. And she comes out, and she's late, and she answers, well, she doesn't even answer. She receives a couple of questions, and she just flips her binder shut and leaves. And I remember at the time thinking, like, that is not exactly a profile in courage. <laughs> this is, I, I don't know how many people were watching the daily government of Ontario press briefings, but I suspect it was at that time, probably about as high as it has ever been. And God willing, as high as it ever will be again, <laughs> thousands, tens of thousands 
of people live in our long-term care system. Hundreds of thousands, maybe millions, have loved ones who live in the long-term care system. Minister Fullerton, at the time, was the person responsible for that system. And after a couple of tough but fair questions, she closes her binder and she walks away. That tells us something not only about the situation, but I think it also tells us something about the person. You said before, and I love what you said, that crisis doesn't build character, it proves character. Minister Fullerton revealed her character to all of us that day. And you know what? Okay, fair enough. Like, lesson learned. Um, She was shuffled out of long-term care a few months after that. Uh, She was kind of shunted off to children's and social services which is still kind of an important ministry. But it was obvious that Ford knew that he had to get her the hell out of the the line of fire for those daily press briefings. And, you know, she just kind of never did anything again. Um, We we have a long list of COVID-19 era failures. Minister Fullerton, I don't know if she was the worst performing public official in Ontario during that time, but she would make any short list. Absolutely. Matt, we're going to have to leave it there. Again, go to the uh, TVO.org website and uh, read the piece itself. Always a pleasure to have you on the show, Matt. Take care. (laughs) You too. Take care. Matt Gurney, columnist for TVO. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. One of the areas that's getting an awful lot of attention, and deservedly so, is the uh, foreign interference, Uh, not just in elections, but uh, in in our governments on a day-to-day basis. And there's some rather disturbing information about that that I want to talk about now. Uh, and we've talked at considerable length about the Chinese involvement because of some of the accusations made in CSIS documents. But uh, there is a, there are other players involved in this, including the Russians. Our next guest can shed some light on that. He is Marcus Kolga, the director of DisinfoWatch.org and a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute. Marcus, uh, pleasure to have you back on the program. Thanks for the time today. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Bill. I saw the uh, the essay you wrote on this and, and some of the elements that were at play here I think we're familiar with with China. Uh, but we can't take our eyes off Russia. Uh, we already know about the Russian involvement uh, in uh, in the U.S. election a few years ago. Uh, but they've turned their attention to Canada and to Japan, amazingly enough. What's going on here? <laughs> well, yeah, look, I, I think that uh, Russian information operations have already been targeting Canada for uh, a, a number of years, uh, really after 2014, when Russia um, uh, engaged in the first uh, invasion of, of Ukraine, when they uh, occupied Crimea and, and eastern Ukraine, that's when they really ramped up their game. And, and Canada was was uh, already targeted back then, um, largely due to our the, the, the Ukrainian diaspora here in Canada to try and silence them and to uh, affect uh, Western uh, policy uh, regarding Russia and our criticism of that invasion back then. And and that culminated, as you mentioned, in, uh, in 2016 in the U.S. presidential elections and has been ongoing and intensifying and becoming more and more sophisticated as time has, has uh, gone on. And, and our report uh, that we uh, just launched yesterday in, in Ottawa in Parliament, with the support, I should add, of, uh, of three parliamentarians, John McKay, uh, James Bazan and Heather McPherson, all from you know the Liberal, uh, Conservative, and NDP caucuses. Um, w- that report finds that uh, Russia has been really upping its game uh, and uh, weaponizing the far left and far right 
uh, here in Canada to amplify its anti-Ukrainian uh, messaging over the past two years. And it's been doing that with with uh, terrifying in intensity. Um, there, we've, what we uh, discovered was that there are a handful of far left and far right accounts in, in Canada, around 100 or so, um, that, uh, that have been amplifying Russian narratives. Uh, but where these are these narratives are going is to basically an ecosystem, and we focused on Twitter, of 200,000 Canadians who are absorbing these narratives and then retweeting them on and, and uh, amplifying them um, perhaps unknowingly to their to their own network. So this is um, the you know we don't know what the specific impact of this is, but the fact that um, that ecosystem includes two hundred thousand Canadian accounts um, is is particularly concerning. And you bring up Japan as well. I, you know I don't think anyone thinks of Japan when it when it comes to Russian disinformation, but um, we have to remember that uh, that uh, Russia and Japan uh, have an ongoing dispute about a chain of islands north of Japan, the Kuril uh, Islands. Um, and, uh, and Russia has been uh, taking aim at Japan uh, with, again, increasing intensity over the past couple of years. They've even created uh, state media platforms that are uh, translated into Japanese. And all of this is to, of course, uh, is intended to manipulate uh, Chinese uh, public opinion about Russia, about geopolitical affairs. And ultimately, all of this uh, is intended to uh, erode the uh, alliances that we have between each other uh, within NATO, within the G7, and uh, and to break down cohesion within our society. So it's it's uh, it's happening, and, and I'm glad that you mentioned in your intro that this is not just something that happens at elections. It is a full-time effort by uh, countries like Russia, China, and Iran uh, to try and undermine our democracies. And it's something that you know we need to be taking much close, paying much closer attention to. Uh, uh, defending our democracies and also taking the fight to these authoritarians. It, a couple of things on this that I want you to clarify, if I could. Uh, first of all, uh, we know that, as you mentioned in the piece, Russia very deeply involved with what's going on in Japan right now, uh, as is China. Is that a coordinated effort? I mean, you know, the two leaders just met about 10 days ago. I'm not suggesting that they're the ones sitting down with, you know, throwing this stuff out there. Uh, <laughs> but 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 they have a, they have a common purpose, though, don't they? Yeah, and uh, and that's a great point. Um, you know, I'm not sure that there is direct coordination, but there is clearly an alignment of interests here. Um, both China and Russia um, are uh, have as an objective the uh, you know to, they're they're anti democratic, they're anti NATO, um, and so in that regard, uh, the narratives that they produce uh, that uh, do target our democracies, that do target the uh, alliances that we have, um, they are very much aligned. And certainly um, with regards to the Pacific region, you know, J Japan is a target um, for both of those regimes. I mean, Taiwan, China has been focusing their information warfare and psychological warfare against Taiwan for for a number of years. So in, in that sense, they're, they're very much, uh, they're very much aligned, and including, um, you know, Canada. Uh, I think that uh, both of them uh, we've seen China take a very close interest, you know, given the, the reporting that we've seen over the past couple of months. Um, and we've known that well before that as well, that China is taking a, a very close interest in, in affecting uh, our public policy and public opinion in this country and Russia, too. And so we're seeing a definite alignment of narratives. Uh, how coordinated, coordinated there are, they are, um, that's, it's unknown because a lot of this st stuff is done in secret. It's done behind closed doors in, in cities like, you know, St. Petersburg and Moscow, um, in Beijing. So we don't know how coordinated it is. But again, 
um, these their interests do align. So it's not surprising to see those narratives align as well. And some common themes within those narratives. I mean, you mentioned the one about uh, uh, the misinformation about Ukraine. That uh, that uh, our, you know our inflation problem right now that we're facing here in Canada uh, yeah. is because of our support for Ukraine, and Ukraine is actually calling the shots for the Canadian government. I've seen those missives. I mean, they've been thrown at me uh, in response to some of the things we've talked about here on the program. Uh, yeah. But I find it fascinating, though, Marcus, that. Uh, People with very, very different views, the extreme left and the extreme right, are both being fed this stuff and, and regenerating this. Uh, they've, they've got their own purposes and, and their own end games, uh, but they're yeah. using you know, these, these two elements. I mean, it, it's diabolical what they're doing here, the, the, the way that you could throw this stuff out here and, and appease both sides to think, yeah, that suits my agenda, that suits my agenda, neither one of them yeah. knows about it. Yeah, you know, and, and these uh, these foreign regimes are actually quite clever in identifying um, those issues and topics that um, might best suit the, both of those extremes. Um, you know, and it's, again, it's what we're talking about here, and I should clarify, is that we're talking about the extreme left and sort of the extreme right. Yeah. And it's even those labels don't really fit nowadays. It's, it's more of a, a group of illiberal activists. Um, these are people who are anti-establishment they're anti-government uh in many ways they're anti-democracy as well um and where they sit on the political spectrum isn't like these aren't traditional conservatives they're not you know traditional socialists um they're pretty much um the polar opposite of what we are a liberal democracy uh and so you know what they over during covid a lot of these uh groups were promoting uh, conspiracy theories they were anti-lockdown uh, supporters. And these, again, were on both the, the far left and far right. And what Russia is, has become very, very good at is, like I said earlier, finding and uh, seeking out and exploiting those, the most polarizing issues in society and then taking those narratives and pushing them out sort of through both of those sides and, uh, uh, and, and, and pushing them towards these, you know, for these illiberal um, activists and uh, and so that's what they've become extremely uh, adept at and and the more that they do it the further polarized uh, these uh, these groups become and so this is very I mean it, it's it suits Russia's objectives because one of their objectives is to um, you know erode the cohesion of our society to cause chaos and such and and that's exactly what we're, we're seeing happening and we and we saw this. Mm -hmm. Uh, manifest itself quite physically, uh, for example, during the uh, trucker protests in Ottawa. Um, yeah. Russian state media had uh, reporters on the ground there. They were providing a platform for the most extreme elements within that movement, uh, the ones that were calling for the overthrow of our democratically elected government. Um, and uh, and they'll continue to do that because it is effective. It is working. Uh, and now, of course, as you mentioned, they're targeting uh, targeting Ukraine and they're trying to create a wedge um, with that, uh, with the conflict that's happening there, and use it to advance their their uh, political interests in this country. Marcus, we've got to leave it there. Our time is tight as always on this show, but thank you so much for this. Really appreciate the conversation today. Anytime. Thanks for having me on, Bill. You betcha, Marcus Colgan, director of DisinfoWatch.org. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from nine to noon on nine hundred CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. 
I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.